Open your Bible to Psalm 25. I believe I've narrowed down where our next expository journey will go, and it's either going to be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Um, it may be Matthew. It's possible Mark. There is the potential for Luke. And as a side note, it's also possible John. I haven't decided <laughs> what I'm praying, Lord, which book are we going to, would be most helpful. Um, and uh, I don't know. I'm leaning towards Luke at the moment. Tomorrow it may be John. So anyway, I'm just I'm praying, and then we're, we'll dive into that. Um, it will probably take us as long to get through one of the Gospels as it did through Genesis, um, which is two years. I'm not sure. If I was John MacArthur, it would take nine years to get through the book. So you guys can just be thankful that I'm not as... Uh, good at it as he is. Um, so, uh, anyway, just be praying. Lord, help us out here. All right, Psalm 25. I want us to read this uh, in its entirety because I want to get, I want the flavor of the psalm, the whole thing, um, uh, to be a part of our, our sermon this morning. And then I want us to come back and look at some key elements in the psalm. So let's read it together. We'll pray. And then we will go forward. Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should go. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you today, Lord, that you are watching over to perform it. And God, I pray that our hearts would be open to hear and to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. 
Lord, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit you would help me to speak and say the things that are pleasing to you and the things that are needed to be heard. Lord, give us ears to hear, and we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Psalm 25 is, if you're looking for a title, it's what worship and trust sound like. And it's what worship and trust sounds like in every kind of scenario that you would find yourself in. And it is a psalm of David, and we don't know exactly when he wrote it because he's written a couple psalms, Psalm 51 being the most popular, that was a direct reference to his adultery with Bathsheba, where he's saying, Lord, against you and you only have I sinned, and he's asking God for forgiveness. This psalm has a lot of the elements of forgiveness. You heard that mentioned several times, that I'm guilty, forgive me for my sin, for your name's sake, forgive me, and you're, according to your steadfast love, he's, he's asking for forgiveness. But there's a lot of other elements mixed in here. So we don't know if this is connected to that event. It doesn't seem like it is. It seems like it's a more general idea of life in general. It is an acrostic psalm. How many of you know what an acrostic is? You know how you have uh, KFC, and the reason I'm thinking of KFC is one, because I'm hungry, and two, because uh, Arwen, learning how to read, reads every sign we drive by uh, in town. So she drives and she's sounding out words, and I'm sometimes impressed at some of the words that she sounds out. But when she comes across something like KFC, like, What is that? None of that makes sense. Those are three consonants. So we tried to explain to her the concept of of what an acrostic is. Each of those letters means something. Kentucky, fried, chicken, and then in parentheses, amen, hallelujah. So, um, Kentucky, fried, chicken. In Psalm 25, it's every single letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So one of the ways that the Hebrew folks would do poetry or songs on occasion is they would write all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and the beginning of each stanza begins with Aleph, Beth, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. So that's what this psalm is. And there's an idea baked into this psalm, this this poem, this intended to be used for worship that has something to say to us because it's in the Bible for a reason. It's, it's like all the other Psalms. It is the way that David is reaching up to God and worshiping God and trusting God and simultaneously expressing exactly what's going on in his life and in his heart. So I want us to look at what worship and trust sound like And it sounds like verse 1. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. The very first thing that you see in the very first verse is what worship is. And the first point I really want to drive home is that our lives as Christians, as worshipers of Jesus, should be God-centered. Now, how many of you have heard the phrase God-centered? Raise your hand. Or Christ-centered. 
Back in the 90s, we used to have a bumper sticker for Zayo. Daniel will remember this. There was, it was Zayo Christ-Centered Hardcore. Now, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's okay. Google Zayo and then ask yourselves what kind of music we were listening to in the 90s and really still to this day. Uh, Christ-Centered, God-Centered. Sometimes you get these phrases and they just roll right past you and you go, oh yeah, that sounds like something you would say in church. God-centered. What does it mean, though, to be God-centered? It it means, really, very simply, God-focused always. One of the notions that I would like you to get rid of and me get rid of, and we need to get rid of, is the notion that I have a church life over here and I have a real life over here. In my church life, I come to church and I do all the right things and I say the right things, primarily revolving around Sunday morning services or any other time I get around people from my church or people that I know go to church. But then over here when I go to work, that's the real me doing the real me stuff, like gossip and slander and lying and cheating and stealing and lusting and fornication. Okay, maybe you're not doing all those things. I'm just throwing everything out that I can. But the real me is over here separate from church, and then the church me is over here. No matter, no matter how good of a Christian you are, the tendency of our sinfulness is to try to separate ourselves out from God and preserve this little corner of our life that is fleshly and is carnal and is sinful, and we just want to preserve it, and then what we want to do is call it normal. This is what normalcy really looks like. And then I go to church. But normalcy looks like this. Sometimes it's not just the sinfulness that is easy to point out, like gossip and cheating and stealing and slander and whatever else. Sometimes what is happening to us is normal means indifferent. For example, I hadn't even thought about reading the Bible until Sunday morning. I didn't even think about worship until Sunday morning. I didn't even think about God until Sunday morning. Think about your life and how easy that is to happen. It's easy to happen because we live in a prosperous nation, as weird as the last 12 months have been, and they have been weird, and they have been difficult, and they are giving us inklings of an idea of what a lack of normalcy looks like. But for the most part, we are continuing our lives in the sin that we commit, which is terrible, is the sin of indifference towards God. I, I will get you out, Lord, on Sunday morning and acknowledge you. But Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, I've got stuff to do. And so God is left aside. What God-centered means, 
God-centered means I go to work to the glory of God. God-centered means I go to church to the glory of God. It means I raise my children to the glory of God with God in mind, with God in the center of the thought process that I make with everything that I do. I buy vehicles to the glory of God. I buy houses to the glory of God. I buy raisin bran to the glory of God. I do all that I do with God in the center of my life and focus. And for some people, me just even saying that, it sounds kind of radical. And it it sounds radical because in our minds, we much prefer Jesus on Sunday, real life Monday through Saturday. That's what is preferred. It's preferred because it's easier. I don't want Jesus interfering with the vehicle that I purchase. I don't want Jesus to interfere with the decisions that I make. I don't want Jesus to interfere with what I'm doing. Now, I want Him to be my Savior. And I do not want to go to hell. I will take forgiveness. Thank you. But I'm not sure that I want to take, Lord, lead me in paths of righteousness for your namesake. I want paths of righteousness that lead to heaven, but if I'm buying a car, buying a house, or getting married, if I'm making a decision, if I'm living my life, if I'm taking a job, if I'm looking at a career, if I'm doing something like that, I would really rather just kind of do what I want to do. Do you guys see what I'm saying? God-centered means, no, Jesus is the filter that I look through everything. And that's not even the right way to say it. Jesus is who I'm looking at and following in everything. Now, Jesus isn't going to tell you which raisin brand to buy. That's not what I mean. Don't get creepy and weird. And trust me, there's plenty of creepy and weird out there. Jesus told me which socks to wear. He, he probably didn't. You're weird. What Jesus did do, though, is teach us to live for Him and honor Him in everything we're doing so that when I wear socks and shoes and get dressed to go to work, I'm doing it with Jesus in mind. Does that, does that make sense? Now, we know Jesus has something to say about the way you're dressed because He does tell us to be modest. Boys and girls, He says to be modest. Right? Our culture tells you you're a prude. Jesus says... The attention should not be on you. The attention should always be on Him. If you are a Christian, you are reflecting Christ, and their attention should never stop at Steve. Well, he's so interesting, and look at the way that he dresses. The attention should always be rebounded up to Him. Being God-centered sounds like, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Worship, God-centered, God-focused, but I'm just, I took a stop here to say that God-centeredness means God dominates everything that we do. He dominates our thought process, and He is just as much a part of my life on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday as He is on Sunday. You must eliminate the dichotomy, which is a fancy way of saying, get Jesus involved every single day. Don't separate God out on Sundays and worship services and times that I feel spiritual, Jesus had better be a part of your dinner plans. He had better be a part of your life. 
You, you mean you got to be thinking and talking about him on a regular basis? Yes! Yes, that's what, I, that's what it means to be a Christian. I feel very passionate about this because we are living in a time increasingly, I believe we will see, where the pressure will be on you to put Jesus in a box, hide Him from everybody else, don't tell anybody, heaven forbid, that you're a Christian, you bigoted homophobe, put Him away. That is the pressure that all of us... Do you feel the pressure? Do you already notice it? It, it? We... I don't know. I don't know what we're... I don't know. It, I'm not going to try to know. I don't know what's in front of us. What I do know is that I sense that in our culture, and I sense that there are Christians who are trying to figure out what do I do with a world that no longer views my Christianity as admirable, but instead view it as problematic? What do I do with this world? We're going to have to look to Jesus who said, if they hated me, or if they, hated, if they hate you, they, they hated me first. And we were, I was having a conversation with my daughters, like, I thought Jesus was just a big teddy bear, cuddly, and everybody just, ooh, hippie Jesus. Just hippie Jesus that everybody loved. and He just went along and got along to go along, and just everything was just kind of whatever. It's okay. Everything's okay. No, that's, that's not Jesus. <laughs> that, that is not Him. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and He has provided salvation through, the, through His death, burial, and resurrection. And He commands now that everybody everywhere repent. Repent for not believing in Him, not trusting in Him, not knowing Him. Carrying that message into a world that wants us to be quiet and wants us to be indifferent is dangerous. But that is what being a Christian really looks like. Historically, throughout church history, there have been many ages where Christians were in jeopardy because they dared to say there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is one name by which you may be saved, Jesus Praise the Lord. It's simple, but we, we find ourselves in a place, I believe, where we've taken for granted for years and decades that American culture would always be basically Christian. And what we're waking up to and finding out is, is that basically American culture was okay as long as you just stay kind of comfortable and indifferent. Start declaring what you believe. Start just simply believing. Start being God-centered in your life. Start making decisions that reflect Christ. And you may find people less amicable towards us. And I'm just telling you, who cares? That is not to be our focus. Our focus should not be, can you believe that the world doesn't like us? 
as if you've never read that Jesus promised the world will not like you? It's different, though, when you actually feel the world not liking you, isn't it? It feels different. It's not what we were looking for. David, as the king of Israel, was surrounded by people who didn't just not like him, wanted him dead. (laughs) So, let's keep reading the psalm. He's God-centered, our worship is God-centered, and you can hear the language of it. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. For David, it was a very real thing that there were physical enemies with swords and bows and spears that wanted him dead. And then he says, and he expresses in trust, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous, intentionally, deceptively treacherous. And then he says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. The word wait in Hebrew is one of my favorite words because it carries with it, the word wait really means to hope in or to hope toward. And it means to just earnestly expect and wait for something. It's an intentional waiting. It is not a lackadaisical, lethargic, well, we're just waiting for it to happen. It's not that kind of wait. It's an active looking forward to waiting. In fact, sometimes waiting before the Lord means that we are acting and doing things in faith and trust as we are waiting for God to do what we are hoping in Him to do. In this case, waiting before Him typically means waiting for some kind of salvation or deliverance or some kind of answer. And in the meantime, I'm not just laying in bed with the covers over my head waiting I am active in life, trusting in God, waiting. And you see the way that he talks in verse 4 and 5. He says, make me to know your ways. Have you prayed this way? Have you prayed and said, Lord, make me to know your ways? When you, whenever you find yourself saying things like, it's too confusing and it's too hard, I, I want you to go to Psalm 25, look at the prayer Pray this and say, Lord, make me to understand. Make me to know your ways. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. You see that the God-centeredness of the worship is zeroed in saying, I can't teach me your ways. I need you to teach me your ways. I need you. Verse 6 and verse 7 is something I, I really want us to, I really want you to hear this. In the same way that American culture has made it easy over the years, if you've been a Christian for a long time, to put Jesus over here on Sundays and Wednesdays and whatever other church events there are, and then real life is over here, that same culture has also told us 
But the God of the Old Testament is distinctly different than the God of the New Testament. The easiest way, and listen, if you don't believe me, go on YouTube and listen to Christians, ex-Christians talk about why they left their faith. There's a lot of that happening now, by the way. One of the reasons is the misunderstanding of how grace works and the misunderstanding of who God is. And the misunderstanding is is that the God of the Old Testament is Mr. Meanie Pants and the God of the New Testament fixes all of His meanness in the Old Testament. You read the Old Testament and He's mean and He's killing people and in the New Testament He's a pot-smoking hippie. Right? Is that, I'm trying to make it as worldly as I possibly can. That's the way that it gets portrayed. God in the Old Testament is mean and harsh and law. And God in the New Testament is anything goes, grace and love. In the Old Testament, the Assyrians are being used in the hand of God as His instrument of wrath to punish Israel for their disobedience. I don't like that. Ooh, yucky. In the New Testament, love turn the other cheek, and they twist all this up into such a way to paint a picture that everything is just flowers and peaches and cream and easy and wonderful, and you can't do anything wrong, and I accept you no matter what you do. And in the Old Testament, it's harsh. And I want you to see verse 6 and 7. Listen to the way David prays to God, because that view of God is wrong. God is immutable, which is a fancy way of saying He is unchanging. He does not change. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Let me say this again. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He does not change from Malachi to Matthew. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And today He is gracious. And in the days of Moses, He was gracious. In the days of David, He was King. And in the days of the New Testament, He is King. He is always the same. Now His covenant with us through Jesus, that is different, but it's really the continuation of the covenant of Abraham through His Son, it found its final and ultimate purpose through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So it's, it's, not, it's still the same covenant that He had with Israel. That covenant continued all the way through to the New Testament. So the forgiving God of the New Testament is the forgiving God of the Old Testament. Now, I know for some of you it's like, whoa, that, that's not, that seems... What? <laughs> that seems too hard. But look at David the way he talks in verse 6 and 7. Remember your mercy, O Lord. He was merciful in the Old Testament? David knew? David, David thought to ask for mercy? Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love? He's loving in the Old Testament? For they have been from of old... David is acknowledging what I'm saying. He's saying, God, you've always been merciful and your steadfast love has always been there. David in other places talks about that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. 
And based on your mercy, and based on your love, look at verse 7. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. David is not banking on the law, though he followed the law, and his keeping of the law. He is putting his hope and his trust in what? The mercy and the steadfast love of God. Do you see what I'm, what I'm seeing here? This isn't the only place this happens in the Old Testament. But this is an example of it. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Do you want to hear what worship and trust sound like? Worship and trust says, I know that you are unchanging. I know you are good. I know you are God. I know your mercy and your steadfast love have endured forever. Lord, remember me according to your goodness and your namesake. Lord, forgive me. The same principle that we have today where we go before God and say, because of the love of God demonstrated on the cross through Jesus Christ, His blood shed for my sin, Lord forgive me, is exactly what David's saying, except he doesn't have the cross to look to. He has the goodness of God, the testimony of God in the law to look to and say, God is good, God is merciful, God is loving, according to your goodness and for the sake of your goodness, forgive me. God doesn't change. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs the perfect in the way. Actually, I said that wrong. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, He instructs sinners in the way. This sounds like mercy and grace, doesn't it? While you were yet sinners, Romans 5, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus said, I did not come for the righteous. I came to seek and save the lost. I came to get the sick. I came to get the people that are broken. I came to get the prodigals. Remember, we talked about that. Prodigals that are Pharisees as well as prodigals that are eating with the pigs. I came to get the dirty, the gross, the sinful. I am the pursuer of the sinful. The sinful aren't even looking in my direction. I pursue you. And David here says, he leads, or excuse me, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. The mercy and the grace of God as He comes and rescues us, the covenant that He has with His people is that they live in a covenant-keeping way. In other words, yes, there are things you are commanded to do. Here's a misconception in American Christianity. It's not about do's and don'ts. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. It's not about do's and don'ts. 
You're right in a sense. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about the goodness of God. It is about the grace of God that empowers you to keep His commandments. Can you see the difference? On one hand, you have people who are trying to live up to a standard that they think is God's standard and they can't do it and they fall apart. And there are a lot of churches and a lot of people who live under a lot of guilt for not being able to keep all the rules. Did you go to a rated R movie? I'm, look, I'm looking at you. Did, you. did you go to a rated R movie? Did you listen to a secular radio station this week? I know you did. That, that is so far removed from the God of the Bible. However, I do believe, please hear me correctly, that as you fellowship with God and live your life in a God-centered way, it is going to cause your appetite to change. Your appetite should not stay the same and all the junk that we watch and all the junk that we listen to should probably get filtered out of our life because it's not even remotely glorifying to God. In fact, it's antithetical to God. It's against God. And eventually your ears, if you are living to the glory of God, will be offended at stuff that is glorifying what He's redeemed us from. Does this make sense? I'm not trying to lay down a bunch of rules for you to follow. However, where is your heart with God? I'm not saying that to condemn. I'm, I am saying that though to ask yourself a question. How far away from God am I that I am unfazed? I, I am guilty. You, you get into the normalcy over here of life and just living like everybody else does, and so it seems okay to do whatever you like. But it's not okay to do whatever you like. Otherwise, He wouldn't be instructing sinners in the way. Hey sinner, I love you. I'm coming to you. When I rescue you, it's not just to say that I saved you out of the pit. It's to teach you how to live your life so that you don't go back into that pit. The grace of God, according to Titus, instructs us how and shows us how to live godly lives in this present corrupt world. You and I need help from the Holy Spirit real bad. We need help because the world is spinning and revolving this way and it wants us to go with it. And Jesus is saying, this is the right way. The total opposite. And when you get into that centrifugal force against the way the world is spinning and you're trying to go the other way, you feel the friction as it's going rolling around, pulling and trying to drag you so that you go and do what they're doing. That pull and that feeling never goes away. And it's been true throughout every generation. Every single Christian has faced it. We are not some special, unique case because we have the Internet. That our Christianity is harder. When you walk down the streets of Corinth, you saw naked prostitutes doing naked prostitute stuff in the name of their gods. You don't think that had an effect on a Christian's mind? Of course it did. 
What did they do with it? They centered their hearts and centered their lives on Jesus and looked to Him for everything. I think I've abandoned my notes. I apologize. All the paths, verse 10, all the paths of the Lord are are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. When you see that phrase anywhere in the Bible, for your name's sake, what is being said? He said it earlier, he said, for the sake of your goodness. He's asking God, Lord, you're good, and for the sake of your goodness, do this. For the sake of your reputation as good. For the, according to your steadfast love, that's what he said in verse 7, and for the sake of your goodness, remember my sins and forgive me. Here in verse 11, he says, for your name's sake. He is saying, for the glory of your name. For the reputation of your name. Not for me, but because of who you are, God. Because you are loving and gracious and forgiving for the sake of your name, Lord, forgive me. He is saying, to the glory of God, forgive me. Do you see how he's got that positioned? Do you see how even his own forgiveness, he looks to God and says, God, you forgiving me is to your praise and glory. If you do not believe me, I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Just real quick. Or if that seems like a radical concept, which I'll be honest, I... The past several years of my life, this, this concept of God's glory being central to God and God's chief concern being with His glory and His namesake, the more I become aware, the more you see it all over the Bible. It is all over the place where the appeal is actually made from Christians for God's glory. To, to act and to move and to forgive and to be who He is. Look at Ephesians 2. I'm going to read verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, or excuse me, blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. We're talking about salvation in verses 3, 4, and 5, and 6. And He starts verse 6 by saying, this salvation in Christ Jesus is to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Our salvation is to the praise of His glory and His grace. And if you go on to chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says in verse 7, after he's talking about our salvation, he says, so that in the coming ages 
he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He is telling us that there is going to be ongoing praise for God's grace to us forever and ever and ever and ever. Our salvation is about us in the sense that our salvation glorifies the One who saved us. It is to the praise of His glorious grace. And David knows this and is saying, for your namesake, forgive me, pardon my guilt. So he has positioned his life in saying, I need my guilt forgiven because I'm living in the soup of the sin that I've made. But Lord, for Your namesake, forgive me. Because You are praised when You forgive sinners. How do you know you can trust God? Because you know that God is going to be faithful to His promise and to His name. Does that make sense? I know that God is going to be faithful because He is faithful to the guarding of His name. And His name is Redeemer. His name is Forgiver. His name is Grace Giver. And because that's who He is, I can trust He's going to forgive me. He's going to redeem. He's going to restore. He's going to turn things around. Verse 12, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. Do you have trouble figuring out what to choose? Do you have trouble figuring out how you're supposed to live? Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. That section of Scripture, verses 12 through 15, says a couple things about the way that we live. When you hear the language of fearing the Lord, when you hear the language of the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him and He makes known to them His covenant. When I, when I see that, when I hear that, part of me says, wait a second, I thought we were already talking about the covenant and that we already know what it is. We already know what the covenant is in one sense. But here, in another sense, David is saying, when you are in friendship with the Lord, that friendship is for those who fear Him. The, the fear of God, is the res- it, it is respect. It is more, though, in awe of Him. And because I look at God as God, not as buddy, but as God, when I see that and I live for Him, 
And He's gracious and loving and fearful and wonderful. He's all of this to me. And I, and I want to please Him. And I want to do what He says. And because I want to do what He says, I, I fear Him. This radical respect maybe is a good way to try to explain this. The radical respect that Christians can have for God, that, that believers have for Him. Those are the people that have a friendship with the Lord where He is making known His covenant. Not just merely the words on the page, not just merely the acknowledgement of the rules, but He makes it known to you so that your very life of holiness and living for God is being fed to you by the Holy Spirit. He is leading you and guiding you and teaching you and instructing you in the way that you should go. Now listen, God is doing this all the time. This isn't, I'm not trying to teach some kind of special Christianity and if you would only fast for six days out of seven and you would only pray for 23 hours out of 24, then you would finally have deep, secret, spiritual access to God. That, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm talking about being God-centered in your life every day, growing closer to Him, fearing Him. God is showing these people exactly who He is and exactly where He wants them to go. That's where verse 12 says, you'll be instructed in the way that you should choose. John Piper said about this verse and about these verses that, that it's like having a spiritual intuitiveness as you are living in holiness before God. That you're not waiting for voices to come into your head to tell you to wear the blue socks. I know, God spoke to me, told me to wear the blue socks rather than the green socks. We've already established that that makes you probably weird. However, waiting for subjective voices to come into your head is problematic. The Lord told me this. The Lord told me that. Daniel, what's the rest of that line? If you can't find it in the Word, it ain't Jack. That is an old Christian rap song that you all missed out on. But, from the 90s. Um, but people are always saying, the Lord told me, aren't they? Raise your hand, right? We see this all the time. The Lord told me, the Lord told me, the Lord told me. Has anybody ever noticed that it's probably not always Him? Have you ever noticed in the Bible there's not a single solitary discussion, not a single solitary discussion on, I wonder if it was God or if I wonder if it was me? Have you ever noticed that discussion is not happening in the Bible? The only discussion that's even remotely like that is a terrifying discussion it does happen in a lot of the prophetic books where God says the prophets that are prophesying this, they're liars, they're not for me. Here's the real prophecy, it's over here, it's the one you probably don't want, Jeremiah, you're going to Babylon for 70 years. That's not the prophecy we wanted. We wanted the peace and safety prophecy. I would much rather have the peace and safety. Your ministry is going to be super important. You're better than anybody's ever seen. Does anybody have any experience with the charismatic world? Um, I'm Okay. Waiting around for God to lead us by subjective voices coming into our head, I wonder how well that's worked out for everybody in here. Because I've talked to a lot of you and I my own self and said, I don't think that was God. 
I'm not saying that God can't. He can. Can God speak to us? I believe with all my heart, yes, He can. Can, does God lead us by His Spirit? Yes, He does. But what does that look like? I think these verses are actually kind of giving you an idea that living for God and fearing God cause an intuitiveness in our following God. Rather than looking for a voice to tell you which brand of cereal to buy, we should be living for God and seeking to honor Him every single day, and in that, not infallibly, but in that, God leads us. In other words, our holiness and our lifestyle of fearing Him, honoring Him, working towards being what we need to be according to Scripture, by His grace and by His help, cause us to follow His voice. And His voice is here. So you're not going to really follow Him without feasting on His Word. How do you know to marry this person? How do you know to take this job? How do you know to buy this house? How do you know not to buy this house? Maybe more importantly, how do you know what to do? How do you know not what to do? Follow Him. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will He instruct in the way that He should choose. Verse 16, the tempo changes, and I'm going to wrap this up. I know I'm just going and going here. Verse 16, turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. He's talked about sin, but now he's getting specific over feelings. Everything up until now have been expressions of trust and expressions of worship. He continues that, but now he's telling God, this is what's going on. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble, and forgive all my sins. Sin again. Verse 11, verse 18... Verses 6 and 7, sin just keeps popping up. But now we've got mixed in with it afflictions, loneliness, troubles of my heart are enlarged, distresses. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. My may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. David is, in this acrostic poem, finishing up and saying, this is what I feel. I want you to hear, though, that when David is honest about how he feels, the language that is mixed in there is the language of hope, and the language of trust, and the language of worship. It's the language of, when, you, when, when somebody says, guard my soul and deliver me, that is the lesser looking to the greater for help. 
Notice that what David is not doing is just ranting and raving about how he feels. It was very popular for a while to say, tell God how you feel. Tell Him how you feel. But it was never really said in the way of a respectful worship. That is what David is telling God how he feels. There's no reason to hide how you feel. It's not that he doesn't know. He knows how you feel. But to go before God with your feelings and your confusions, which is partly why he's asking and talking about God making paths straight and, and all of that, you go before God with worship and humility and trust and say, if I'm going to get any of this straightened out, it's going to be because of you. If any of this is going to work, Lord, it's because of you. I need you. Lord, guard my soul. Deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. God-centered living is no matter what happens, no matter what comes our way, no matter what we feel, we always turn to God. No matter what, we always turn to God with our confusion, with our loneliness, with our fear, with whatever, all of the stuff that you're hearing here. David is turning towards God in hope. In the very last sentence he says, is a petition. Redeem Israel. This is the king talking. The king of Israel is saying, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. Whatever is going on in David's life, and he finishes up this acrostic poem and song, he has put all of everything towards God. And he's, he's talked about God's grace and His loving kindness and His mercy. He's talked about fearing the Lord. He's talked about following His commandments and doing what is right. He's talked about the friendship of God and, and God making His covenant even more known. There's this, talk, this intimacy talk. He's also talking about Lord, I'm lonely and I'm afflicted and I am having troubles and I am afraid. All of that kind of talk is in there as well. And at the very end, though, he's still saying, I'm taking refuge in you. Redeem Israel out of all this trouble. I, I get the impression when he finished writing that, that the troubles were not over. That they were still present tense troubles. But this is what following God sounds like. It sounds like somebody who's not afraid to acknowledge, I'm troubled, I've got problems, but they're also not just wanting sympathy, they're wanting... David wants you and I to know, and he wanted the people of Israel who sang this to know, and he wanted God to know, Lord, it's in you I put my... uh, You are my refuge. It's in you I put my trust. I'm looking to you. You are the center of my life. So what what I'm hoping you'll take away from this is no matter what's going on in your world, in your life, at work, in your family, no matter what it is, that you would make God the center of it. And you would make His name and His character and His glory the center of your concern. And that you would live for the glory of God. And if that still seems strange to you, just read your Bible and see that that is what the people of God are constantly doing and constantly saying.
the f- most freeing thing in the world to me has been the realization that this book is not about me. It affects me a lot. But it's not about me. It is about the glory of God throughout all eternity. Are we going to be worshiping my achievements in heaven by any stretch of the imagination? The answer to that is no. Will we give God glory for anything I did empowered by Him? Yes, we will. To the praise of His glorious grace, because every one of you that are born again will be an example, a trophy of God's grace that will not glorify you, but will glorify the God who saved and rescued you. Do you see what I'm saying? All eternity is going to be filled with glorifying God. And here on the earth, we as His ambassadors are doing that now by living our lives for Him. And what makes God look glorious is His people who are lonely and afflicted or His people that don't even necessarily have anything going on, but they're focused on God, centered on God. That makes Him look great that His people are enamored by Him. That His people are caught up in His glory and caught up in His name. That's how we live as worship and trusting Christians. Not to focus just, not just to focus on us, but to be God-centered. So the focus is not on us, but it's on Him. Praise the Lord. Pass the potatoes. Amen. I'm going to have everybody stand up. We are going to receive communion. If you did not grab one of these, they are right out here in the hallway. It was a life-altering experience for me to realize that the Bible wasn't about me. The Bible was about Him. That us being together is not about us. It's about Him. But in Him, us being together is really important. It's not that we aren't important. It's just that He's the center. Communion is one of the sacraments of the church where we are intentional in saying that Jesus died for us so that we would become to the praise of His glorious grace. We're saying that His body was broken and that was the bread on the night He was betrayed. He broke it and He gave thanks. And he said, this is my body, broken for you. They did not understand it. Broken for you. He was just hours away from the cross, where he would be 
physically broken, but not just physically broken. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he had cried out and said, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. And the cup was the wrath of God for sin. 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Jesus had to, to save us, take on the sinfulness of the world, and then receive the wrath of God for that sin. If there was going to be forgiveness, there had to be justice. And justice was headed toward you. There is nobody who escapes justice. Because God is just. And Jesus stood there and took the justice of God on the cross. And he was innocent and he was perfect. He was God in the flesh. On our behalf, standing there for God so loved the world. He did this. He took the justice of God. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Isaiah 53. He took it for you. And justice was satisfied. Because the perfect innocent son took the perfect justice of God for sin. So that whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. You and I are not saved because we say a prayer. We are saved because Jesus Christ took the justice of God, the wrath of God for all of sin. And this morning, if you do not know Him, call on His name right now and say, Lord, I believe in You. Forgive me of my sin. I believe, Jesus, You are the Son of the living God and You died for me. And on the third day, God rose You from the dead and You are seated at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. And Your blood was shed for me to forgive me of all my sin because you took the punishment that I deserved. Church, we are remembering that He saved us this morning by His broken body and by His perfect shed blood on the cross. Let's do this in remembrance of Him. Lord, I ask that with this week of storms and snow and disrupted schedules, that our hearts would be centered on you. God, teach us to know your ways. Lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Open the eyes of our heart that we would know you better. Let us shine like a light this week, wherever we go. Lord, we thank you for it in the precious name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. We will see you at 3 o'clock if you are so inclined to come roller skate. There is a trash can in the foyer for your communion elements. God bless you. Have a wonderful Valentine's Day.